This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Thanks for listening on this Sunday evening. Uh, we have a great show for you today. Just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by calling here on studio at 573-882-8262. You can also find us on Facebook where we are, The Big Electron, or uh, shoot us an email to thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. And if you're listening on the podcast, thank you for listening and please rate us. My birthday's in two days. <laughs> do you expect a gift or some sort? From everybody listening, yes, okay. I do. <laughs> so your mom, your dad, and me. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure they'll send you something. Starbucks gift card. Oh, that'd be nice. Okay. <laughs> okay, so today we have a, a really cool show uh, that we're going to attempt to do. It's a little bit different than what we're used to, So, but I think we have someone who's better trained than us, <laughs> at least. I would hope so. <laughs> More handsome. <laughs> so today uh, we will be talking a little bit of the convergence between science and the law. Um, and more specifically about a couple of patent cases that, that we thought were um, really exciting, especially because one of them made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, so we thought it would be it would be a, a good idea to um, to touch on on that and try attempt to explain a little bit of of that. Um, and as we said, we have a guest with us today. Um, if you want to introduce yourself for us. Hello, my name is Jacob Wilson. I'm a law student at the University of Kansas School of Law. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before we go into detail, I think we should probably talk about what is it that we are going to talk about. Um, so there's this case that, as we mentioned, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was a a lawsuit uh, filed by the Association for Molecular Pathology against uh, Myriad Genetics. If you have heard of that um, before, it probably means that you had someone um, who you knew had breast cancer. Um, so Myriad Genetics patented a one of the genes that um, has been identified as a marker for uh, potential development of breast cancer, uh, the BRCA1 gene or BRCA1 gene. Um, and they patented that back in 1998. Um, but as we said, this case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and it was argued in 2013, so kind of recently. Um, and it was decided that, um, so it was decided also on 2013. And basically what the case was, um, it was challenging um, whether or not you can patent a gene or a DNA sequence. Um, specifically, in this case, uh, isolating the DNA sequence uh, of this gene and then um, the, the methods to, to diagnose for that and identifying drugs and so on and so forth. 
So before we go into the law stuff, um, we should talk a little bit about the the gene itself and why why it's important and how it made it um, into this patent. Yes. So I guess before we even touch this gene, we should say how DNA, RNA, proteins, genes are all related yes. in, in the cell. So when you have, um, so we have DNA, and DNA exists in the nucleus of a cell, and the DNA has all the genetic code um, in, in there. Um, and the DNA codes for specific things, and it has uh, certain regions of the DNA code for certain parts of the DNA. So in this case, um, when you have uh, the code, let's say you want to code for the BRCA1 um, protein, in this case, um, you have the gene, the BRCA gene, in the DNA that can, that's that gets uh, transcribed to RNA, so basically just um, copying that gene so that it can exit the nucleus and then it goes and um, it gets translated. Um, So it goes from this gene to actual uh, molecules that come together and form a protein. So in this case, this protein, um, it's the BRCA1. So what does BRCA do? Well, real quick, let me just talk about proteins for a second in general. Mm -hmm. So proteins are these molecules in our body, and um, depending on what they're encoded to do, they'll do different things, obviously. So some of them provide structure. Some of them transport transport information across the cell membrane, for example. Um, Some of them start... Uh, chemical reactions around cells or throughout our body and all of these things just slowly work together to make your body function. So an example I always talk about when um, I'm giving poster presentations or stuff like that is that um, proteins, so if you take any of the top 10 selling drugs in any year for the past I think 10 years is what I looked up, those drugs target proteins in the body. So it's not that if you're taking cholesterol medicine that you take the drug and the drug targets cholesterol and is just beating up cholesterol throughout your body. No, it targets a protein and kind of a chain reaction in your body gets started and that eventually leads to the lowering of cholesterol or whatever that drug is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what a protein is. Um, protein... So they have a specific function. function. Yeah. Yes. Um, and w- that function is dictated by what shape it takes. So if you have a protein that looks like um, a slinky, that's going to behave differently than a protein that, you know, is just a mix of stuff or if it's in neat lines like structural proteins are. So, yeah, so how a protein is shaped will dictate what it can do and if it can do that work. There are two parts of the of the BRCA1 protein. The first part is called the zinc finger, and it's a ring. And the second part is called the BRCA1 C-terminus, or BRCT, to make it even more confusing, to add another, <laughs> another acronym in it. So the zinc ring finger mm-hmm. is a ring, um, and it creates stabilization and, um, and actually binds with a some zinc in the body. Mm -hmm. So when it comes in contact with zinc, it'll bind with that. The other half of it... we have zinc in our bodies. Yes. Naturally occurring Mm -hmm. zinc in our bodies. And then so uh, BRCT, the other half of it, what that part does is that's the side that actually starts repairing DNA. So... um, So BRCA repairs DNA. Right. And... In the process of repairing DNA, it also does transcription regulation and tumor uh, suppression. Okay. So what do those words mean? Science. (laughs) No, so tumor suppression. So that's what, um, where this all kind of links in with what you were saying before about breast cancer. Mm -hmm. If you have um, damage on your DNA, this BRCT1 part of the BRCA1 will work to repair that damage. Um, not which will not allow a tumor to grow further than where it is, or at all. Mm-hmm. Or any damage that you have. Yes. So basically what it does is you have this breakup protein that when it's normal, it repairs damaged DNA. Mm-hmm. But 
when the protein is damaged, then it cannot repair the damaged DNA, which in turn causes either mutations or um, tumors to grow that then develop into breast cancer in this case. Yes. So, um, so of course, this is something that um, when you're looking at, at breast cancer and identifying whether or not, um, or attempting to identify a diagnostic of, um, in this case, breast cancer, um, what Myriad Genetics did um, and a whole bunch of other people did was looked at the human genome or DNA um, and they try to identify whether and they try to identify um, this specific gene that um, they could identify and then create a diagnostic. So if you have this gene that is damaged, then you would have a higher propensity of developing breast cancer. Right. So we all have the gene, theoretically, Mm -hmm. um, in perfect functioning condition. And therefore, we should all have this natural tumor suppression. Mm -hmm. But some people don't. And that's where we see cases of breast cancer Mm -hmm. pop up. So there are actually two BRCA's, right? There are two BRCA's, yes. So two BRCA's, two BRCA's proteins, uh, or breast cancer proteins, uh, were identified. Um, And both of them, um, when when you test for them, um, when you test for damaged of those proteins, uh, you can tell this person will be prone to cancer or not. So, for example, um, a couple years ago, we heard about Angelina Jolie undergoing um, some some tests about this because um, she had her uh, family history on on breast cancer. And so, what they were testing was indeed for these two um, genes, for the mutation of these two genes, the the BRCA genes. And when they notice that there is a mutation in there, um, they they think that this will then develop into breast cancer. And so um, then you can develop some treatments after that diagnosis. Um, But yeah, there are two genes, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Now, BRCA1 was the one that um, was patented by uh, Myriad Genetics. So why don't we move on and talk about the patent itself? Yes, so just for a little bit of timeline, mm-hmm. uh, Myriad Genetics was founded in 1991 um, by three scientists. It was in 1994 that Mark Sklonek, which was one of the founding scientists, along with 40 other collaborators, had published that they had cloned BRCA1. So three years after founding the company, um, and that, and then the following year is when BRCA2 was being sequenced by, again, Dr. Sklonik and his collaborators. At Myriad. At Myriad. Okay. Within that same year, they became a public company, and the next year, they launched uh, the full, first full-length gene sequencing, sequencing test for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. So that was called uh, BRCA... I'm sorry. It's BR... Uh, CA analysis, so BRCA analysis. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, it's catchy. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, that's when the whole... That, right. From that point on, that's when the legal cases started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the patent um, that we're talking about was patenting um, the BRCA um, gene... BRCA1 gene um, with uh, a couple of things that uh, that they patented. And this patent, was, this patent was granted in May of 1998. Um, so this patent has uh, a... F- quite a few claims um but overall what they what they claimed uh was the isolated dna coding for BRCA1 peptide which means uh the the dna code for this specific protein so they isolated all those dnas um they also patent part part of this patent claim for um, identifying these um for a diagnosis um and then the third part of it was to um, 
sort of how to test for treatment of this. Uh, once the, the gene is identified in, in a person, um, how you can test for, for drugs or treatments or um, things of that nature. So this patent was, was uh, quite heavy, had uh, 20 specific claims. Um, and it was granted. Again, it was granted in 1998. Um, it was filed since 1994, um, but you know it takes a little bit for, for patents to get granted, and so it, it took until 1998 for this to be granted. So this patent was granted to Myriad Genetics, and then they, they had basically, um, I guess we can call it a monopoly, can we say a monopoly? Uh, a patent is allows for a legal monopoly for a certain period of time. Which is 20 years. 20 years. Okay. So basically it allowed for a patent. Uh, this patent allowed for um, a monopoly in breast cancer diagnosis by Myriad Genetics. So there are a couple of controversies that this kind of brings up. This, these genes... And this is kind of the main controversy, is um, that these genes occur in every human. Um, so patenting a gene um, that occurs naturally in every human is kind of seems like an obstacle. <laughs> the second uh, controversy is that, um, and these are interesting topics, but I don't know how much they were raised in the case. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is that the, f the funding provided to Myriad to find these genes, uh, it was public funding. And it was related to the discovery of breast cancer and treatments for breast cancer and things like that. So the idea that there can be a patent on treating breast cancer when it's a publicly funded research, there's controversy there. And then lastly, that test that I was talking about, the BRCA analysis, mm -hmm. It was about $4,000 to do the test. So for you to test if you had this mutation, you were pretty much paying the cost um, that it would be to sequence your whole genome. Mm -hmm. So they were saying if that is kind of outrageous to be looking for one gene at the price it would cost to do a whole genome sequencing. So those are the three little controversies. Three little things. And there were... Um and there were some some other stuff also um, that I think we're gonna talk touch a little bit on that. But before we do that, I uh, will go on a short musical break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM. The opinions expressed on this radio show are those of the individual participants and should not be relied on by any listener for legal advice. As always, consult an attorney for your own individual legal needs. <laughs> All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here at KCU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. And we're talking about this case um, that marries uh, science and, and the law. Um, and it was a, a cool case that, as we mentioned earlier, uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court. So what we're touching on is the patent of um, the breast cancer gene that if mutated, if this gene is mutated, um, it can lead to breast cancer. Um, so it was sort of a diagnosis of um, breast cancer. And um, this patent also covered, it covered uh, the identification of this gene, um, the isolation of this gene, and, um, and then potential uh, diagnoses, um, how to diagnose for, for this gene, and then some potential uh, treatments for this. So that's all the patent um, cover. And right before we went into break, and he just said a couple of the controversies that controversies that touched on this patent and um, that then made it into a, a legal case. So where do we want to start? I guess I have a question to start. And this might be a general question that, Jacob, you might be able to answer for us. So how okay so there's this patent patent gets granted how does that suddenly turn into a law case why did it even get granted if it if there were controversies around it are those two separate legal entities the patent office is a uh, 
is an office created by the Congress of the United States, which uh, listens to patent claims from inventors about whether or not the patent can be granted. And so here, uh, the back in 1998, the patent office heard Myriad's um, codification of their invention and decided that it, uh, under the statute that empowers the patent office, uh, gave Myriad the right to a legal monopoly over their invention. Um, eventually, almost at the end of the term of the patent, a group of scientists uh, named the Association for Molecular Pathology decided to challenge this patent with a de de uh, 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 declaratory judgment, which is a special leading pr le legal proceeding specifically for patents, um, which is intended to get uh, aspiring inventors to be able to use the invention without having to pay royalties. Cool. So then... Which is the whole point of a patent, right? To be able to get royalties on your invention. Absolutely. And if you're an inventor who wants to use technology or a discovery that has been patented, uh, you have two ways of doing so. The first is to use the invention anyway, and when the holder of the patent sues you, saying you're violating our patent and you owe us royalties, uh, you, the aspiring inventor who didn't own the patent, can say, well, that patent wasn't legally given to you. And so uh, you may demand me for these, um, for these royalties, but I don't think that I should have to pay them. So you'll have to sue me in order to, to get your royalties. Uh, the other way, is uh, this declaratory judgment, which is a procedure that was created so that aspiring inventors could challenge the patent without opening themselves up to legal liability before they started doing it. Oh, I see. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so, so in essence, you kind of own the thing, whatever you patented, and then you can also get royalties from from that one as well and if you have if you have um if you remember a, a little bit you've seen probably on facebook or or somewhere in social media that uh the vaccine for polio was not patented um and this is because uh the, the inventor of the vaccine said no we we need this to it, it is a public health issue and um, we want to cure it and here's a way and so he decided not to patent it. Um, but yeah, so. The premise is that the patent is intellectual property. And just as you have property rights over your house or your car, uh, a patent is a way of asserting intellectual property. This group, the Association for Molecular Pathology, decides to challenge the patent. So. What uh, can you walk us a little bit through the process of how do you challenge a patent in this case? Um, how did they do it? They did it through a uh, declaratory judgment, as uh, was discussed earlier. So through a procedure that was uh, affirmed by the Supreme Court in Metamune Incorporated v. Genetech Incorporated, uh, Association of Molecular Pathology uh, was able to bring this uh, this this claim that the patent given to Myriad Technologies was uh, illegal, that it was an improperly granted patent. In, in the patent, there were 20 claims um, that they had, and they challenged just a little bit of, these, of this patent. They challenged uh, six claims, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, encompassed the isolation of this specific gene, um, the diagnosis of this gene, um, and then the potential applications or treatment in case you do have the mutation for this gene. Um, and I guess a little bit of, of history before we go into more, more legal details. Um, the, the, the way that they isolated the gene is actually remarkable. It's, it's, it's a great idea. It seems kind of obvious when you say it, but it's actually pretty cool. Um, so in uh, this company, Myriad Genetics, is based in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
and they identified that um, a group of uh, families around the in the Utah area had a big propensity and cases of breast cancer, both in women uh, and men, which is uh, kind of rare. Yeah, but I they think had five percent of breast cancer cases are men. If mm-hmm. I remember that, but space. but this set of families, um, I believe it was uh, about forty families that. The grandmothers, the mothers, the daughters, the cousins, the the nieces, and some wow. uh, males had breast cancer, and so they took samples of of these families and looked at the ones that had had cancer, um, breast cancer, and then some of the more younger ones, um, and they identified that this gene, the BRCA1 gene, um, is the one that codes for or if miscoded, uh, codes for this um, bad protein that in turn turns into uh, not repair of the DNA. So it's just this one very unlucky family. Mm-hmm. Set of families that... Was a good case study to find mm-hmm. that one gene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Justice Thomas, in his opinion, in the Myriad Genetics decision, actually cites just how useful this discovery was pointing out that the average American woman has a 12 to 13% risk of developing breast cancer. But for women with certain genetic mutations on the BRCA genes, the risk can range between 50% and 80% for breast cancer and between 20 and 50% for ovarian cancer. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge jump. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And so that's why um, you hear more and more that if you have family history, you need to get tested that way, you know, because um, you're very likely to, to develop breast cancer. And so if you can uh, diagnose it early and treat it early, then um, hopefully you cannot, or this particular uh, woman can't um, develop breast cancer. So it is it is indeed remarkable. Um, and I guess you could think about it and say, like, obviously this is going to save a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. So why do they need to patent it at all? Why isn't it publicly available? But um, to defend Myriad for a second, mm-hmm. um, their the way that their business model worked was that they had to um, patent this kind of technology so that, first of all, competitors couldn't do yeah, the same absolutely. thing and patent it. And second of all, that way that the the money being invested in a myriad was going to be then put into trying to solve more breast cancer issues. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, and I mean you're a company. So, you're a you company. Know, you need you need some some money to to come in, and this is a great discovery. Right, I mean, it, and it, they it, are the first ones to isolate it and properly identify the the specific gene um, along how to diagnose for it and some ideas on on how to treat. Um, this gene. So yeah, it was it was money that was going to go back into the science and back into creating more solutions. It, mm-hmm. It's a company that the company was ultimately working for this public health issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then, um, so going back to to the lawsuit. Um, so it started um, as Jacob mentioned, the Association for Molecular Pathology started this this lawsuit against uh, Myriad Genetics. And um, so it was first heard in the Southern District Court of New York. Um, so Jacob, can you walk us a little bit of how a case goes from association all the way to Supreme Court? Because it, it doesn't go directly into the Supreme Court. It, it has to go through different sets of places before it gets to the Supreme Court. The federal judicial system is set up with the United States Supreme Court at the top of it, and then congressionally created courts that answer to the Supreme Court beneath it. Uh, Those courts are in two levels. There are district courts, uh, usually several divisions of of the district court per state. Uh, In this case, we had the Southern District of New York, um, and there's usually several districts per state. California, I believe, has five of these districts. Um, Then when you go one level up, there are 13 federal circuit courts, which are appellate courts. The way that uh, appeal works in the United States is that every 
defendant or plaintiff has the right to at least one appeal. Uh, if you wish to persist in your case, you can have your decision at the district court reviewed by an appellate court, and that's a three-judge panel. If you want to persist further in your case, if you still do not disagree that uh, the case is rightly decided, you can uh, petition the Supreme Court to hear your case, uh, who may issue a, it's called a writ of certiori, or uh, just writ of cert, to hear the case in the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court has discretion to uh, hear whatever case they want. They are not required to, to hear cases. And uh, it's actually quite an issue in the legal community of uh, lack of transparency in, in understanding why the Supreme Court will choose some cases on some years and other cases in other years. Um, interesting thing about patent law is that, uh, as far as I am aware, none of the Supreme Court justices have a technical training in, in patent law, which is a somewhat niche area of the law, uh, nor do they have particular training in tax law or employee benefits law or other uh, very niche areas of the law. And so what you'll find is the Supreme Court will typically hear patent cases in groupings. Um, every 15 years or so, the Supreme Court will decide, okay, we want to hear, uh, we want to hear cases about civil engineering this year, or we want to hear cases about genetic engineering. And we have just recently gone through a period where the Supreme Court has heard uh, many cases with regards to uh, DNA mm -hmm. and the patenting of biological products, which this case, uh, the Myriad Genetics case in 2013, is just one. So, so the Association for Molecular Pathology uh, put the lawsuit and then it went to the first level of court, in this case in New York, um, and that court ruled um, that all the claims were not patent eligible. So basically ruled in favor of this association. I think... I think uh, ruled that all of the claims that are at issue were not patent eligible, but that many of the procedures within the patent were, were eligible for patent. Right. So only only some claims of the patent were put to in the lawsuit. I guess is, is that the correct? That's probably correct. Yes. Okay. So so this the first level um, of of the court said. Uh, you're right, Association for Molecular Pathology, uh, they are not patent eligible, um, so here's the case. So then Marriott um, decided to appeal, as Jacob was mentioning, um, and it appealed to the federal circuit. Um, so this was the United States Court of Appeals for the federal circuit. Mm -hmm. So it appeared to- Which federal circuit was that? The federal circuit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for so, the federal circuit. So they appealed in the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, the way the federal circuits work is uh, each circuit has several states that answer to it. Uh, those account for 12 of the circuits. The 13th Circuit is the D.C. Court of Appeals, uh, which hears claims that do not arise out of the jurisdiction of any particular state. Um, which would make sense in this case because um, Myriad was set in Utah, but their patent caused them to send out like cease and desist letters around the country. Mm -hmm. So pe the people being affected by it were nationwide. So Absolutely. would that make sense? 100%. Okay. So then it goes to the, to the federal circuit um, and the circuit court overturns the previous decision saying um, basically ruling in favor of Myriad. Um, but they favored in uh, towards Myriad in, in just one part of the lawsuit. So they favored um, in saying that isolated DNA uh, can be patented and that the drug screening claims are, are good, but that the diagnostic claims were unpatentable. That's why it's important to, to mention a little bit about uh, what each claim does. So then, um, Obviously, the, so, associ the Association for Molecular Pathology didn't like that, and they appealed, in this case, to the Supreme Court, so the, to the third level of, 
of the judicial system. So just so we can orient ourselves time-wise, the federal circuit made their decision in July of 2011. The first petition to the Supreme Court um, started in 2012. Mm -hmm. And then it was later heard on the 2013 term. So then they they were able to uh, go to the Supreme Court, and then June 13 of 2013, in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court said, no, you cannot isolate, you cannot patent isolated genes. Is that correct? That's correct. <laughs> Are we reading law? <laughs> But that synthetically created DNA could be patent eligible. Um, and I think, I think it's important to, to make one distinction. It may be a lawyer's distinction. But um, while the, the court did say that naturally occurring DNA sequences um, cannot simply for the fact that they were discovered be patent eligible, I believe that the court's ruling does allow some uh, conjecturing over whether uh, any naturally created DNA could be patentable. There may be situations, just not this one, where naturally occurring DNA, quote-unquote naturally occurring DNA, uh, could be patentable if it was uh, invented and discovered and novel and useful. So the the holding was, uh, and I'm just going to read verbatim here, it said, naturally occurring DNA sequences, even when isolated from the body, cannot be patented, but artificially created DNA is patent eligible because it is not naturally occurring. That's a very good sentence. It starts (laughs) and ends with naturally occurring. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... um, so then what happens when when the, the the Supreme Court rules this or makes this decision? What what happens then? Uh, when the Supreme Court makes a decision, uh, they either decide the case outright or they remand the case to a lower court for enforcement. Uh, in this case, the Supreme Court uh, made the order itself and uh, decided that the patent with regards to the DNA sequence itself was uh, not issued correctly by the patent office and therefore uh, Myriad Technologies would not have the right to assert a legal monopoly over the use of this DNA sequence. But they, they still have rights or patent, uh, patent eligibility for other things uh, that involved this patent. Absolutely. Right? The yeah. procedure by which they did isolate the gene remains their intellectual property. I got kind of sidetracked. I'm sorry. But apparently, Dr. James Watson, who, uh, you know, um, just not discovered, he but identified the DNA structure. DNA structure um, apparently submitted an amicus brief. Yep. So an amicus, On this. Like, yeah, so an amicus brief is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jacob, uh, it's kind of a, a form that you submit along with the case saying, like, yeah, I agree with this, or no, I don't agree with this, and here's why. Um, it's kind of like someone making a, I don't know, a persuasive essay. Like, I'm an expert in this realm, and here's my persuasive essay <laughs> on what I think. <laughs> My torts professor said that as an attorney, you can always charge extra for Latin. And so an amicus brief is short for an amicus curiae brief, which is a friend of the court brief. It's, as you've described almost exactly, a brief issued by a third party unrelated to the lawsuit um, offering legal reasoning or other sorts of reasoning to the court for why they should rule in one way or another. I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing that yeah. one of the, I guess, founders <laughs> of DNA structure, although he's not a founder, he's just... He's not a founder. He's a... Rosalyn Franklin. Yes. Well, of course. Else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something else. Okay. Uh, that's how big this case was. Obviously, it went to the Supreme Court, so it was huge, yeah. but... 
Um, and he was not the only one. A lot of uh, other people filed in favor or against, um, or you know, with one side or the other, the other one. So, so okay. So 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 we know what the what the Supreme Court ruled. But how did they come to this conclusion? What sort of argument or, or thing they said? Yes, if you, if it's a natural occurring DNA sequence, you cannot patent it. But if it's synthetic, you can patent it. Like, what did they say um, when they made this ruling that sort of help with with that? Patent law is on a uh, unique legal foundation in that regard. Uh, the right to make laws regarding patents is an enumerated power of Congress. So oftentimes you'll hear uh, libertarians or other other small government um, advocates say that the federal government should have no right to dictate health care, for instance. And they base that on the fact that the Constitution does not say that Congress can make laws about health care. However, the Constitution does say that the Congress can make laws about patents. It's one of the few enumerated powers of Congress. U.S. Constitution Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 states that the Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing the limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Now, the U.S. Congress has asserted this right by writing Title 35 of the U.S. Code, Section 101, in which it says, whoever invents or discovers any new and useful process, machine, manufacture, or composition of matter, or any new and useful improvement thereof, may obtain a patent therefore, subject to the conditions and requirements of this title. Now, Myriad Technology was arguing that their isolation of DNA consisted a new and useful composition of matter, that because this DNA, when isolated on its own, does not exist in nature, that they make the cut in the DNA sequence here and here and between those cuts, this sequence exists nowhere else in nature, that they had discovered a new composition of matter. The Federal Circuit Court, as we as we mentioned, uh, actually approved of this reasoning. They they pointed out that if you make this cut in the DNA from here to here, the chemical formula for that sequence is completely unique. It's it's unlike anything else found in nature. There is a strong dissent in that case, though, pointing out that. What's important in DNA is not the chemical composition itself, but the sequence of the genes. And because BRCA1 and 2 exist in all individuals, that this sequence is not unique to nature. It's, it's a sequence that is necessary for human DNA. Or for humans to function, rather. Absolutely. Because it's in the, in the DNA. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, that convinced me. But, but when, you, when you talk about, about property, you know, uh-huh. it's, it's it a property or is it is it the patents thing? Okay, so obviously... Now, may I? Uh-huh. One of the reasons why the Supreme Court ultimately said that Myriad Technology could not patent this technology is because the Supreme Court has long held is that the Supreme Court has long held that this provision, the provision of Title 35 of the U.S. Code Section 101, the Supreme Court says that this rule under which patents are issued contains an important implicit exception. It says that laws of nature, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas are not patentable. Oh. I mean, that's convincing. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, okay. I can see why she should be a lawyer. <laughs> this, this can be confusing because one might think that because the power to issue patents is an enumerated power of Congress, oh. that only Congress can come up with the rules of how patents should be issued. And Congress says that inventions or discoveries of any new or useful 
composition of matter can be patented. However, the Supreme Court, in a decision that's nearly 150 years old, says that laws of nature, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas cannot be patentable. So the Supreme Court has written that a new mineral discovered in the earth or a new plant found in the wild is not patentable subject matter. Likewise, Einstein could not patent his celebrated law that E equals MC squared, nor could Newton have patented the law of gravity. Such discoveries are manifestations of nature, free to all men and reserved exclusively to none. So I have a question. This is taking this question is gonna take us a little bit off topic. Good. Okay. So let's say that ruling changed. And now all of a sudden we could patent uh, gravity. Can I patent it? Here in America, we have recently switched to a first-to-file system of issuing patents. Uh, for many years, we had a first-to-discover uh, or first-to-invent uh, system of issuing patents. And uh, this creates a problem of uh, what are called patent trolls, um, which, was, which was quite a, a problem in, in the 2010s, in the early 2010s. What can occur in under a first-to-invent system is if an inventor is passive in their assertion of intellectual property rights and don't go through the legal hoops necessary to file their patent, then another agency, another individual or corporation or anything else that is aware of this discovery could use all of those discoveries, file them with the uh, patent office, and uh, by doing so, since they're the first to, to file, assert their intellectual property over the invention of another. Um, under the first to discover, first to invent system that we had had previously to 2013, the patent troll was actually doing something uh, illegal. It's the first to invent person that matters. Mm -hmm. But if a patent troll has good enough legal counsel, they could make arguments that say that uh, even though that they're filing first, that whatever they're doing is sufficiently different from what was done before is in a significant improvement where the patent should still be granted. Um, so, in short, since we now have a first-to-file system and no one has so far filed for the patent on gravity, if you were now allowed to patent laws of nature and you were the first to file, you would have a patent on gravity. I'm writing, writing it up now. Just waiting for the moment. And, of course, if you, if you did so, then anyone who made money by using gravity would be subject to royalties. So they would have wow. to pay you for their use of gravity. Um, so everyone would have to pay you? <laughs> anyone, anyone making money using gravity. Uh, so, so basically a Rube Goldberg machine, yeah. you'd get all the royalties. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, Anahita. Sounds good. <laughs> I have a plan now. <laughs> so you said this this ruling changed in 2013. 13. Okay. Oh, that is recent. That is very recent. And okay. there there may be a constitutional challenge on, on that matter. Uh, we'll have to see. Um, it mostly has to do with the idea that in the Constitution, Congress can only empower inventors. Uh, the Constitution does not say that Congress has the power to uh, to empower the first of filers. Hmm, that's cool. Well, that's pretty neat. <laughs> equals MC squared. I don't think I'll have too much competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's that's pretty neat. Um, yeah, thank you, Jacob, for enlightening us in in this. It was it was very cool, and just a a, a little bit of, of added trivia to this whole thing. Um, this case or or something similar uh, involving myriad genetics also went to the federal court of Australia, 
And in uh, October 2015, the High Court of Australia, which is a, the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, ruled um, kind of the same thing, that uh, isolating this nucleic acid with the specific variation uh, was not a patentable invention. So, um, again, all the processes in which they were able to isolate it and how you can diagnose it, diagnose it. Um, all of those are patentable, but the gene itself uh, cannot be patented. I do have an interesting counterfactual for, for the scientists in the room that I think uh, might, might uh, be sufficiently different from the Myriad Technologies example where we might agree that it should be allowed to patented a, a gene or, or uh, some sequence on a chromosome in, the, in DNA, which is this. Uh, suppose that we have a duo of biological scientists, of genetic scientists, a man and a woman, who both realize that they have uh, genes inside themselves that if combined between the two scientists, could create some very useful uh, expression, some very uh, useful phenotype. Uh, for instance, uh, it would let you glow in the dark. Mm -hmm. If these two scientists both did all the research to determine how close they were to, if they just mixed their genes, they'd have this, this very useful, uh, uh, this new gene, would the mother and father having done the research necessary and done the experiments necessary, probably having to have like a hundred kids to see which one glowed in the dark. <laughs> or mom. <laughs> in this case, not only would they be taking credit for isolating the gene, but they would also be taking credit for creating the gene. Mm -hmm. And in this case, gene. in this case, it's not synthetic DNA. It's naturally occurring DNA. Yeah, that's true. In this case, would the couple be able to uh, claim intellectual property over naturally occurring DNA? Yes. My intuition says yes, which is why I think that... Uh, but that this claim says no. So this claim very much say. says no. Okay. But that's in the case of the Myriad Genetics example, where everybody has this gene, and all that Myriad Genetics did was isolate it from the rest of the genome. Is that enough to say you can have a patent on that gene? The answer, clearly, is no. Mm -hmm. uh, I hesitate to say, though, that the Supreme Court's ruling stands for the fact that no naturally occurring G DNA could ever be patented. Mm -hmm. well, I guess we'll point. see. Yeah. So wherever that duo of <laughs> genetic engineers <laughs> are, <laughs> well, let us know how it goes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, thank you very much, Jacob, uh, for this uh, enlightening of, of patent stuff that's related to science. <laughs> yeah, thank you for clearing up all the legalese <laughs> yeah. I did what I could yeah uh, thank you and thank you for uh, listener thank you for listening to the show uh, again you were listening to The Big Electron on KCAU 88.1 FN have a good night